0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Carolyn Castiglia.
1: There is only so much cum a woman can swallow (laughs) before she vomits it back up in an I love you.
0: That and more. But before that, I just want to say this holiday season, Sock Club is delivering the perfect gift experience quality American-made socks that are sent straight to your loved one's door, featuring different designs and a personal note every month. This is the gift that keeps on giving all year long. I've received these Sock Club socks. I've been getting compliments for them. They fit beautifully. They're so comfortable. The designs are so cute. Go to SockClub.com and get 15% off using the discount code RISK at the checkout. Give Sock Club this holiday season. And speaking of holidays... With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. It will be packed with so many people you'll want to scream, so use Stamps.com instead. You use your own computer and printer to print your U.S. postage for your
2: letters and packages.
0: We use Stamps.com. Why don't you use Stamps.com? Right now, get this special offer when you use my promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial, and we know that's just confusing. <gasps> <gasps> Plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus off for the digital scam And free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the
3: homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com Enter Risk
0: Now here's the show. Whoa! Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is The Horn Singers. Behind me now, we are calling this week's episode Respect, four stories that hit on that very precious word in very different ways. And you know what? There's two particular stories on this episode that are a little different. They weren't recorded at official risk shows. They were recorded at an evening that we helped curate. You know, with all the talk of immigration happening these days, we wanted to introduce you in this episode to these two storytellers that are part of one of the most diverse and brilliant communities that we've ever had the pleasure of working with, the Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowships for New Americans. It's one of the most competitive fellowships in the country and it's exclusively for immigrants and children of immigrants. Every year, they give $90,000 fellowships to graduate students who are working at the very top of their fields. They have composers, architects, scientists, doctors, lawyers, future policymakers, designers, writers, you name it. The goal of the Soros Fellowships is to shine a light on immigrant excellence, And to demonstrate the diverse contribution that immigrants make to this country, as well as their diverse backgrounds. The whole community comes together once a year, and this year they did so with me helping coach them to tell their stories. And it was just such a moving night, and we're going to feature two of the stories from two of those Soros fellows in this episode. In just a bit... We're going to hear from one of them, that is Maribel Hernandez Rivera. But before that, we are going to hear a story that was recorded at a Risk live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn from a dear friend of mine. So to kick us off today, get us started with our stories of respect. It's my dear friend Carolyn Castilla with a story we call The Way We Were.
1: everybody. Oh, you talk. It's cute. Somebody came and they were like, I'm going to get on the podcast, damn it. Oh, hi. Uh, it was you. It's good. Um, so back in the summer of 2011, uh, I had just moved to Brooklyn with my then five-year-old daughter, and I was going to start a new life after my divorce. And part of starting this new life meant that I had to finally, for real, for sure, totally, without chickening out, finally start going to therapy and uh, deal with the childhood shit that had been holding me back my whole life. So I start going to therapy and I realize pretty quickly in, after a handful of sessions, maybe I don't need to do comedy anymore. Maybe I'm gonna quit. Because once you start paying a professional to listen to you talk about your problems, it makes you question why you do it at Strangers for Free. Uh, So that was on a Tuesday, my therapy session, and I didn't have another show booked until Saturday. And I decided I was going to take those four days and kind of sit in silence and figure it out. And I told myself, all right, on Saturday, I'm going to do the show, and if I love it, I'm going to keep going, and if I don't, then we'll take it from there. So I go to the show. It's up in Inwood, the tip, 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 tippy top of Inwood, you know, that only you would go to if you were a comedian who desperately needed to tell jokes in a bar Uh, And it's at this grungy Irish pub that hasn't changed since the 1950s. There's a bar, there's seats at the bar, and then there's kind of this half wall in between the bar and the showroom where there's seats and the audience is looking up at you. But you got to perform for the whole space because everybody at the bar can see you, and if you don't get them, they're going to talk through the show and ruin the whole thing, right? So I get on stage, I start fucking with the crowd, I start doing my material, they're fucking loving me, I'm loving it, I'm so pumped, I feel so powerful just holding that dick mic in my hand, you know? And I look down and I just see my tits in this t-shirt that I'm wearing, and I'm like, ah, my tits are great, (laughs) fucking my tits are so great, my jokes are great, I feel so great, you know? And I look out at that moment and I see this guy in the center of the crowd and he's looking up at me and he's just beaming, right? He's got this beautiful face and he's laughing and smiling at me, looking right at me, you know, like he loved my set and I mean my jokes and my rack. (laughs) And he had beautiful brown skin and he's wearing this brightly colored dashiki and he looked familiar to me. Now it turns out I had actually met this guy before because he was a friend of a friend who was on the show, but that's not the only reason why he looked familiar to me. He looked familiar to me, right? So I was like, we're, we're gonna have something, right? So after the show, mutual friend, this guy, we all hang out, we agree, I'm gonna drive everybody to Brooklyn and we're gonna go to this dive bar by my house. Now because I'm not quitting comedy, it turns out I have a show there on Monday. So I'm excited to go see this bar for the first time, I've never been there. We get there, the guy that I have a crush on walks in, so fucking cool, like he knows everybody at the bar, he's charming as hell, he's laughing, we're getting free drinks. I didn't know that meant he was an alcoholic. You know, I had led a very sheltered life up until this point, right? But what do I know? And I'm just like taking him in and his majesty and his mastery. He was the kind of guy who was like masculine and feminine at the same time, hard and soft. Like he could make smoking look great and sad all at once. And so I hung out there all night kind of being this stupid girl who was waiting around, you know, like I drank until four o'clock in the morning and I'm waiting for him to ask me out and he didn't do it. Finally four comes and I'm like exhausted. I'm like, I gotta go home. But I told him that I was gonna be there at the show on Monday and he said he'd come. So Monday comes, I put on my best dress, tight on the titties, you know, so we can replicate the moment before. I do the show and he's there. And I'm so excited! I'm, I'm freaking out! I'm like overperforming a little bit, but he overlaughed, so I was like, "It's meant to be." <laughs> and then after the show, we hung out, uh, we drank. Finally, he asks if he can walk me home, and I say, "Sure." We get to my house, and I say, "Would you like to come in?" And he says, "Sure." And we walk in. You're right; in my kitchen. It's a very small apartment, so if you're in the kitchen, you can pretty much see the whole thing. He's standing there trying to, like, look for something to do. And I'm like, well, you've seen the place, so I think you better kiss me now. And he did. And then he fucked the shit out of me for the next seven hours. (laughs) Now, when I say he fucked the shit out of me for the next seven hours, I'm not saying we fucked for two hours and slept for five, okay? I'm saying for seven hours, he tied me up into a pretzel and flipped me like a pancake. He did things to me that no one has ever done and no one will ever do again, okay? I felt things I know I will never feel again in this lifetime. He had moves from porn that doesn't even exist yet. Okay, at one point, I don't know where the fuck he got this, but he took all 10 fingers and laced them between all 10 of my toes. That's not a fucking move. But it's really something, okay? He just grabbed me like I was in stirrups and then went in. I was like, ah! (laughs) Uh, I I died three times that night, you know? And then I asked him about that move later uh, and he was like, well, I figured if I was only going to see you the one time, I wanted to give you a night you'd never forget. Uh, Except he said it using a word I can't say because the only N-word I say is nice. Uh, And it was nice. (laughs) So we kept seeing each other after that. And uh, you can imagine, I fell in love with the guy right away, okay? Because the truth is, there is only so much cum a woman can swallow before she vomits it back up in an I love you. That's how that works. That's the trade-off. So I was like, I love you. Uh, here I think you dropped this down my throat, uh, (laughs) but he kind of broke my heart like right away from the jump because he only wanted to come over late at night and one time he told me he'd be there at midnight and then he didn't get there till 2.30 and when he got there at 2.30 of course I let him in anyway because I didn't have any boundaries which is why I was in therapy, right? So I open the door, he comes in, I just sort of pout my way up the stairs. He lays me down in my bed and he knew I was mad. So he started speaking patois to me, right in my ear. And he was like, how can you be such a harsh mistress? And I was like, well, now I can't. (laughs) Now you gotta do the foot thing again. And by the way, I'm not even into feet. Okay, it's just that he was so exceptional. I was like, I don't even like this, but I love it. Which was pretty much the tone of our whole relationship. We did start hanging out during the day, though, eventually. And one morning, we're in my kitchen drinking coffee. And he's looking at the magnets on my fridge. And he sees this one magnet. And he turns to me and he goes, what the fuck is this? and I was like, what could possibly be on my fridge that would make anybody say, what the fuck is this like that, you know? So I walk over, and I see it's the Confederate flag. Yeah. Now, black guy in the front row who just whistled. (laughs) Uh, Let me explain. (laughs) I got this magnet. When I was 25 years old, I was on tour in the South with a children's theater company. We were doing Pippi Longstocking, and at age 25, I was playing nine-year-old Pippi, (laughs) the strongest girl in the world. So every day, I'd wake up, and I'd put this janky-ass red-braided wig on, you know, and I'd go out in front of a bunch of kindergartners and sing, If you believe in yourself, you're sure to win. And then I would get in a van with a bunch of non union actors and we would all share one bucket of chicken. Uh, So when I saw this magnet at the souvenir shop in Alabama, I didn't think anything of it. To me, it was like, oh, I've been to Alabama. That's what this represents. I wasn't thinking, oh, this represents the Civil War. This represents slavery. This represents racism. Because I didn't know. And I was from the North and we just, you know, this was before the internet, right? (laughs) We didn't know. Flash forward to this moment in 2011, and here's the black man that I'm in love with, looking at this Confederate flag, and saying, what the fuck? And I immediately go, oh fuck, I'm gonna throw it away. And I don't know why I wasn't thinking about the racism attached to that flag, because when we were on tour in Alabama, one of the days we were setting up the set, our stage manager told us, hey, guys, we got a bunch of visitors here with us this morning. They were convicts on work release. So the guy who starts setting up Villa Villa Coola with me, he seems all right. So I turned to him and I go, what are you in for? He goes, murder. And I was like, oh my God, I really need the hammer back. (laughs) Thank you so much. But what he said to me after that was, a black man comes to Alabama on vacation and he leaves on probation. I never forgot I never forgot it touched me so when I saw this moment and this man and this magnet it all came back and I just immediately threw it in the trash and he kind of looked at me and we held hands for a minute and we were like all right and uh then we left I took him home got in the car drove him up the street we get to the top of the hill there's a pickup truck with a confederate flag bumper sticker on the back And he goes, hey, Carolyn, you see that? That's how you tell who the racists are. And I was like, yeah, I got it. Now we kept seeing each other after that. And I learned about what it was like for him to grow up in New York as a black man, how he got arrested all the time for shit his white friends never got arrested for. He had to spend the weekend in the tombs. And then we started hanging out with my daughter eventually and he told me that he was afraid that if I left the two of them alone in public for too long, somebody would think that he kidnapped her because she's white. I never would have thought of that if he hadn't told me that. We did eventually break up uh, and it wasn't because of anything that an interracial couple goes through, uh, any difficulties an interracial couple faces, it was just because we wanted different things. I wanted him to be my boyfriend, And he thought being somebody's boyfriend was stupid. Uh, Now, five years ago, I was like, that's bullshit. Okay. But five years later, at the end of my 30s, I'm like, I kind of get where he's coming from. Because he didn't like the word boyfriend. He thought it sounded childish. And it does kind of sound childish, right? Like, I'm not going to be somebody's girlfriend. I'm not a girl. I'm a queen. (laughs) You know? I'm trying to be somebody's queen friend at this point. I'm looking for my king friend. You know what I'm saying? I want us to walk down the street together and run into people and be like, oh, yes, we're very serious, royally. Uh, And, you know, five years later, I stayed in therapy. I learned that you can't fall in love with somebody and expect them to change or need them to change to prove that you're worth it. And the best news of all, I stayed in comedy, and I just recorded my debut stand-up album. I'm working on a TV deal, and I think it's gonna happen, you guys, because you know what they say. If you believe in yourself, you're sure to win. I'm Carolyn Castelia. Thank you so much.
4: So my dad and I have a lot in common. He and I both have black curly hair. He and I both love to dance. He met my mom dancing, and decades later I met my husband dancing. We both are very strict about punctuality. Uh, His favorite phrase is, el que se quedó, se (laughs) quedó. So whoever's left behind is left behind. Uh, but there's one big thing we don't have in common and that is that I was able to become a naturalized US citizen and he lived his life undocumented so my new American story begins when my dad decided to come to the United States I was about nine years old I remember that the day he left he woke me up in the middle of the night He kissed me and he said goodbye. I opened up my eyes, everything was dark, and then he was gone. I knew he was leaving to the U.S. because days earlier, we had traveled for about 12 hours by bus from Mexico City, south to Poza Rica, Veracruz, where my dad was from. And we traveled there looking for a group of people who were going north. On those days when we went and traveled to those places, I remember going to so-and-so's house. I had never met those people. And we walked their roads. When we got to the destination, my mom and my dad would go inside of the house. They would close the door. They would close the shades while my two brothers and I stayed outside. We stayed outside under the sun in the patio watching the chickens run around. Now I gather that the people we were visiting were coyotes, people smugglers. And I gather that the conversations that were had inside that house were about money, they were about logistics, and they were about the perils that my dad would face, which now I know were many. He used to tell me the story about crossing the desert. And this one time, he was crossing the desert, and then he had to jump into a hole Now, in this hole, there were cacti, and he was stung by the cacti, but he had to remain quiet and remain still because La Migra was roaming around immigration officers. They were looking for the undocumented, and he did not want to be caught. So I remember that story, and I remember growing up as a child in Mexico City, longing for my father. The last few years of elementary school, I just wish I could be with my dad. And I couldn't because he was in the United States. And we couldn't speak by phone because we didn't have a phone in our house. My grandmother did, but she lived a few hours away, uh, so we couldn't do it often. But I remember the first time we came to visit my dad in the US, and that was a great time. My mom and my older brother were able to get a passport and a visa. My younger brother and I, we couldn't, but that was okay. What my dad did is he arranged for a border mom to come pick us up on the other side of the us mexico border. So this border mom came, met us in Matamoros at a hotel. She came with a guy, with a man. When I saw the man come in the hotel, I thought it was my dad. So I ran to my dad and I gave him a hug, soon to learn that that wasn't my dad. That man was there to let my younger brother and I know that to cross the border we were going to pass as our border mom's children. So of course I was embarrassed. I was ashamed not to even remember what my dad looked like. It had been four years since I had last seen my dad. He left when I was around nine and now I was around 12 or 13. So we go, we try to cross the border it's July 4th. My mom had decided you cross on July 4th because the border patrol are not paying attention. They are busy with the fireworks and they won't be asking you many questions. So we go to the border and at the border there's different lines for people who are not nationals and for people who are either residents or citizens of the United States. So my mom and my older brother go to one line and I start walking behind them because I have forgotten what I had been told in the Hotel in Matamoros. All of a sudden I stopped when my mom turned around and with her glance reminded me that at the border, she and I were not related. That at the border, she did not know me. So at that moment, my eyes watered. Luckily, my younger brother took me by the hand and we started following my border mom. Luckily enough, we crossed the border, no trouble. Then once we crossed on the other side of the border, we got on the bus that would take us to Houston, Texas, where my dad lived. So the first time we came to the US, I still remember how exciting it was. I remember we all slept on the floor in the little room where my dad lived. But even despite the tight quarters, it was the first time we went to a Chinese buffet. (laughs) It It was the first time we went to NASA. And it was the first time that we as a family went to the beach. I really, really had hoped that we were gonna stay with my dad. But after the period of authorized stay for my mom and brother had expired, my parents decided that we needed to go back. They explained that being undocumented in the US was dangerous. My dad's biggest fear you know, if we stayed, we would join a gang because some of his co workers' children had joined gangs. So for him, that's what would happen to us. And so he said, you guys are safer in Mexico with me sending you back money. So we went back. But happily, we came back a couple of times. And every time we came back, I begged. I told my parents, can I please, please stay with my dad? And it finally worked. Uh, After much deliberation between my mom and my dad, my mom and my dad finally agreed under the condition that I stay with my younger brother. So we stayed. My mom and my older brother went back to Mexico. In the US, my dad's job was to be a warehouseman. As a warehouseman, he didn't have a set schedule. So we never knew when he would come out of work or not. But what we knew is that as soon as he got out of work, he would get into that car and his car was not air conditioned. You couldn't even bring down the windows. But he would get into his car and can't find my younger brother and me, whatever it is that we were. And often that meant that it was halfway between home and school. Our school was about two miles away from our house and we had to walk, whether it was cold, whether it was raining, whether it was hot, we just had to walk. So seeing my dad appear out of nowhere Even if he was sweaty, even if he had his uniform that was all dirty, even if his car was falling apart, it was just beautiful to see my dad appear out of nowhere. That was the highlight of my day. And then when we got home, my dad would help me do my homework. My dad, like me, didn't speak any English, but he would help me find all the words in our Spanish-English dictionary so that I would be able to do my work. And one time I remember being in middle school, And it was the first history fair I had ever participated in. I had no idea what that was. And so I was told I had to put together a poster board, and the poster board had to have some, you know, graphics and all that. So I told my dad. And I said, well, I want to write about Gandhi, and I'll write, but I'm like, I wasn't, I'm not an artist. I wasn't an artist, didn't know what to do. My my dad said, don't worry, I have it under control. He pulled an all-nighter drawing Gandhi's picture. And that picture was in the middle of my poster board. And he and I won a prize for my history fair. <laughs> so, my dad not only helped me when I was in middle school, he supported me every single step of the way, even if he didn't quite understand my dreams because our life experience was so different. He supported me when I decided to go to Mozambique and work there for a year. And he and the whole family came to drop me off at the airport. And when they dropped me off at the airport, I remember going up and seeing my dad and just having second thoughts. Do I do this? Do I not do this? Looking at my dad's big, big smile, just gave me the assurance that I had to do it. So when I went to Mozambique, I was 25 years old. It was June 26, 2016. Soon after I left for Mozambique, my younger brother got deployed to Japan with the U.S. Navy. My dad was so proud that he drove my brother from Texas to Virginia to see him off. About a month after my brother was deployed to Japan, on October 18, 2015, I got a phone call at 5 a.m. Mozambique time. Now, I thought it was my dad going to wish me happy birthday because my birthday had been two days before. And I was ready to scold him and say, Dad, how dare you call me two days after my birthday? But it wasn't my dad. The person on the other side was my older brother. And his question was, have you heard from dad? When he asked that question, I felt a big hole in my stomach. I said, no. And he said, okay, I want you to remain calm, but it appears as if dad was in a car accident. So I stood up from bed and I kept listening. And he said, and we don't really know, but what we know is that this past weekend, he was supposed to drive down from Virginia to Texas. And he had committed to do a handyman's job, and he had hired a young man to help him. So when my dad didn't show up, the young man called up my dad, and the person who picked up on the other side was the owner of a junkyard in Manning, South Carolina. And the owner of the junkyard said to the young man, the driver of this car was killed in a car accident. So the young man called my dad's wife, who then called my older brother, who then called me. My brother then said, but we're still hopeful. And the reason why we're hopeful that maybe dad is okay is because the authorities haven't called us. So maybe his car was in an accident, but maybe he wasn't. So please, please stay calm. And I said, okay. My older brother immediately flew to South Carolina to see what was happening. I went from Mozambique back home. My younger brother went from Japan back home. When my older brother got to Manning, South Carolina and spoke to the police officers in Manning, South Carolina, the first thing he was told was, no habla espanol. And that's despite the fact that my older brother speaks English perfectly. Despite the fact that my older brother's wife is Caucasian and she was with him. So then my brother requested my dad's belongings. And the officers refused to turn over my dad's driver's license. And then my brother asked for the contact information for the other people who had been involved in the head on coalition, because that those other people had survived and they were unharmed. So we wanted to know what had happened. But the officers refused to give that information. When my older brother went from the police station to the morgue to recognize my dad's body, he was followed. We felt powerless. We felt unwanted. We kept wondering, how can it be that nobody called the family to let them know what had happened? How can it be that the Manning Police Department, that the coroner's office, that the highway patrol, nobody did anything to just pick up that cell phone and dial the last number, which in fact was my older brother's last number. How can it be that these people are treating my brother the way they're treating him? Is it because they felt that my dad was just another undocumented immigrant who had no family in the United States and whose family would never know what happened to him? We will never know. Now, I have to tell you that throughout my whole time in the United States, what I wanted the most was to help my dad go from undocumented to documented. And I hope that by my going to fancy schools, by my brother going to the Navy, we were gonna be able to do something about it. But we weren't. My dad died before we could do anything about it. Now, my dad used to have a phrase, and he used to say, things happen for a reason. There's always a reason why things happen. And so, to try to understand why this happened, and I still don't know why, but I tell myself, well, this happened, to inform the work that I do. I now work at the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs. My job is to think of programs, to think of ways to help immigrants in New York City to better their life. Now, I wish I could have done that for my dad, and I can't, but I know that I can do it for other people. And when I think of my dad and I think of his favorite phrase, el que se quedó, se quedó, I think, okay, dad, you're gone. I'm left behind. But I'm not left behind with no purpose. I am left behind with the purpose of helping other people who could be helped, who don't have all the benefits of having all these resources. So I couldn't help you, dad, but I'm gonna help others. Thank you.
5: Now is the time. Together with one another. Eye out their problems and iron out their quarrels and try to live as brothers. And try, try to find, find peace within without stepping on one another. And do respect of the women of the world. Just remember, we all had mothers. Make this land a better land in the world in which
3: we live.
5: And help each man. And I know we can make it I know that we can I know done well we can work it out Oh yes we can, I know we can, can Yes we can, can, and why can't we if we wanna Yes we can, can I know we can make it work I know that we can I know we can make it if we try Oh yes we
0: is Risk. This is Alan Toussaint behind me now, and we just heard from Maribel Rivera Hernandez. If you'd like to learn more about the Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowships for New Americans, they are at pdsoros.org. Also, here's something really special. You guys know our episode editor is Jeff Barr, right? Well, before he was custom crafting every Risk episode for the past six years Jeff created the most unpredictable party game it's called dumb luck it's a home gambling game where players race to the finish line playing over 30 different single-player and multiplayer side games along the way players can play for fun or cash The game is set up to play using real money to make things more interesting. The game itself comes in a beautiful-looking poker chip case with 300 high-quality poker chips, playing cards, dice, and more. You can see all the details at dumbluck.com game.com. And as a special Christmas bonus, risk fans can get this game with free domestic shipping by clicking on the secret link at the bottom of the dumb luck order page. Just go to dumbluckgame.com, Click on the order now tab at the top, and then click on the dumb luck photo at the bottom of the page to get free shipping. Every game is a unique experience and anything can happen in Dumb Luck, the ultimate gambling party game at DumbLuckGame.com. Okay, another thing. You know, you might have been feeling down lately. (laughs) I can't imagine why. And that's why we're excited to introduce our new sponsor this week, Talkspace. If you've ever thought about going into therapy but found it too inconvenient, too expensive, too embarrassing maybe to make it to an office somewhere, then give Talkspace a try. Talkspace is the online therapy company, and they make it easy to connect with a licensed therapist, handpicked just for you, for as little as $32 a week. Using Talkspace, you can text, audio, and video message your therapist as much as you want. Your Talkspace therapist can listen to you vent about work or family, explore your relationships with the people around you, help you put you on the path to a happier life. To sign up and learn more, go to Talkspace.com risk. And as a special offer for our listeners, you can use the coupon code RISK to get $30 off your first month and show your support for the podcast. Talkspace, therapy for how we live today. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from a fellow named Calco, told a remarkable story at our show in Baltimore. Man, we had a wonderful time in Baltimore. First time ever in that city. Beautiful crowd, wonderful storytellers. And as you'll hear, Calco really knocked it out of the park. But before that, we're going to get back to that evening of stories told with the fellows at the Soros Foundation. This one comes from Jason Kim, who is a writer for HBO's Girls, and who you can find at waytoserious.com. Here is Jason Kim now with a story we call Read Me. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. I know we can. Yes, we can. Gosh,
5: almighty. Yes, we can.
2: Hi, guys. Hi, Paul. A lot of dad stories tonight, and mine is really no different. Uh, This is a story about my father, a psychic, and a trailer park. I grew up in Seoul, South Korea, and one of my very first memories is as a two year old taking a nap on my dad's big tummy. Falling asleep, to the wonderful music of his snoring and feeling my head bobbing up and down with his breath. Like everyone who grew up in Seoul with a father, I really idolized him. He stood very tall at five foot seven. He had this wonderfully aristocratic salt and pepper hair which had a huge bald spot and he always wore a lot of tweed. He was an architect, and one of his favorite things to do was to buy a house, flip it, and then move into it. Now, I hated moving as a child. I hated packing, I hated unpacking even more, I hated moving furniture. It was a huge hassle for me. So in order to grease me up, my dad would come home every time he wanted to announce this news, with a plastic bag full of popsicles. So in 1996, when I was 10 years old, I heard the elevator door open, I heard my dad's footsteps, and I heard the rustling of the plastic bag, and I knew immediately what he was gonna say. And sure enough, he came home and he said, hey, we're moving to a new place. Get ready, it's gonna be in two weeks. So I start wondering, okay, maybe this isn't going to be so bad. Maybe this time we'll move into a penthouse in Olympic Village, a nice mountain house with a great view. But two weeks later, my dad, my mom, and I get on a plane, and we move 5,000 miles across the globe to St. Louis, Missouri. So I don't know if you guys have been to St. Louis, but... (laughs) There's really nothing there except for trans fats and segregation. (laughs) So for the next eight years, I spend all of my time wondering why we immigrated to the United States. And during the rare occasions where I would gather up enough courage, I would go to my father, this proud stern man, and ask him, dad, why did we move here? And I would always, without fail, every time, be greeted with complete silence. Sometimes when he was in a funny mood, he would tell me to go up to my room and shut the door and stop thinking. (laughs) So it's the day before I go off to college, and I decided I'm gonna try one more time. So I take my dad out to dinner at Applebee's, trans fats, (laughs) and I sit him down across from me and I ask him, Dad, why don't we just go home? You are so unhappy here. You used to be so gregarious, so big, so friendly and warm and open, and now you seem so small and depressed and sad. Why don't we just go home? Why do we move here? And like always, he looks right at me and doesn't say a word, and I could feel my anger boiling inside, and I turn to him and I say, You are a terrible, selfish man. I hate it here. The next day I fly to New York, with this question still in my mind, and so you would think that when your best friend decides to buy you a reading with New York City's most prominent psychic, the psychic to the Clintons, the NYPD psychic, the psychic whom show Medium is based on, you would think that the first question out of my mouth would be, hey, why did we immigrate here? But no, because I do not believe in psychics. (laughs) I am an immigrant, which means I believe in facts (laughs) and hard work. So I go up to this psychic's apartment in the Upper East Side, she's wearing this gorgeous red tunic from Morocco, and we sit down and she turns to me and she says, I had a great conversation with your ancestors last night. (laughs) Okay. Really? You did? You speak Korean? Ancient Korean? But she looks right at me and she for the next hour starts to tell me that everything I'm doing in my life has been completely wrong. So as a side note, I should tell you that at the time I'm in college, I am about to apply to business school. I am a week away from accepting an offer to work at Citibank, and I have decided that I'm gonna spend my entire life wearing loose fitting suits and kind of ugly Oxfords. No offense to everyone here in this <laughs> room sure. for work at a bank. Sorry. So for the next hour, Patricia the Psychic proceeds to tell me, honey, you are not gonna go to business school. You should really get it together and be an artist. And not just any kind of artist, a writer. And not just any kind of writer, I think you'd be very good at writing dialogue. Uh Uh-huh. By the way, I'm sorry to tell you that in the next couple of years you're gonna get sick You're gonna have some lower back pain after, but it's gonna be fine. Also, I think you're drinking too much coffee and eating too many
3: bagels.
2: (laughs) And lastly, I know that you've always wondered why you immigrated here. And I have to tell you that it's because your father got in a fight with his brother. Now, I don't know if you guys watch TV, but I watch a lot of Shonda Rhimes TV shows. always a moment in every single one of her shows, in every episode, where the female protagonist, who's usually wearing a lot of Gucci, <laughs> has been trying to solve a mystery, and at the very end, hear something, and everything clicks into place. So at that moment, I stand up from the table, I look at Patricia, and I tell her, see, this is how I know that you're a frog, because my dad doesn't have a brother. My dad has a younger sister, so thank you and goodbye." And she proceeds to get up and she looks right at my face with her piercing eyes and she says, I'm right, and by the time you realize it, it's going to be too late. Okay. Cut to five years later. I'm in graduate school. For writing. (laughs) For playwriting. I have just arrived to class after an appointment at the chiropractor, because I've been having a lot of lower back pain (laughs) from the seizure I had from viral meningitis, and my mom calls me out of the blue and she says, hey, listen, I know that you're approaching your summer vacation soon, and I really want us to take a mother-son trip to Seoul. And I think, okay, great. So a couple of weeks later, we get on a plane and we fly all the way back to the other side of the globe And we spend the next two weeks together getting drunk, getting a lot of manicures and pedicures, getting a lot of facials. We're really serious people. And on the last night, my mom tells me, tomorrow we're going to go somewhere early and I'm going to wake you up. And my mom is also basically a Shonda Rhimes character, so when she gets into these moods, I don't really question her. So the next morning we wake up early, we get into a car, and I think we're gonna go to breakfast with one of her friends, and we start driving, and she drives, and she drives, and she drives, and I look back and I can see the city getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and all of a sudden we pull in to a trailer park. And I ask my mom, what are we doing in a trailer park? And instead of answering, very typical Kim family trait. She pulls up to the very last metal container and out walks this man who looks exactly like my father. So the next 24 hours are kind of a blur, but I make a lot of discoveries. I discover that my dad not only has a younger sister, he has a younger brother and another younger sister and another younger brother I discover that my dad is not one of two, but one of five. I discover that my dad decided to leave the rice farm when he, when he was 15 years old in order to make money for his family. I discover that he made all that money, put all of his siblings through college, paid for their weddings, set up trust funds for their children to go to college. I discover that all of his siblings have emotional problems and I discovered the uncle who's standing in front of me is a severe alcoholic and an addict. I discovered that he abused his wife and he went to jail. And my father bailed him out and that I gave him $50,000 to restart his life. And I discovered that he took that money and bought a saxophone. Because what better way to start your life over than through jazz? <laughs> I discover that he took the saxophone, went to a bar, proceeded to get drunk and left it there. And I discovered that the day that my dad came home with the plastic bag full of popsicles, he found out and he decided that he didn't want to be there anymore. The car ride home was eerily quiet and my mom and I looked at each other. I could see that she had tears in her eyes, but we didn't say a single word for two hours. And as we were pulling up to our hotel, she looked at me, and she said, I know you've always wondered, but I have to tell you, your dad is a good man. I fly back to New York City. For the next couple of weeks, I get to know my father. And during one of the conversations that we have, I call him, and I tell him exactly what I discovered. And I ask him, Dad, why didn't you say anything to me? And he gets very quiet and he says, why tell you all the bad when I can show you the good? For my dad, the good was immigrating to the US. The good was making himself small so that I could be big. During one of our later conversations, I suddenly realized, oh shit, Patricia the psychic. (laughs) So I, quickly get off the phone. Sorry, Dad, good to know you, but talk to you later. <laughs> and I flip my apartment upside down, searching for this little notebook I used during the session to write everything down. I finally find it in a shoebox, I read through it, and I'm overwhelmed that over half the things that she had said had come true. So I pick up the phone, I start calling her, and I call her, and I call her, there's no answer, I type in her name, I click enter, and the first thing that pops up is her obituary, dated one week before. So maybe it was too late, but also maybe not. Because my dad, not a selfish man, a selfless man, and a good man. Thank you.
5: Wow. You have a lot of spirits around you. I do? Yeah, yeah. S- spirits are attracted to certain people's auras, and uh, you have six, uh, seven spirits around you. Whoa, cool. Yeah, huh? yeah. They all seem to be having a really good <laughs> a time. What? <coughs> Nothing. No, what's funny? What? what? Nothing. Uh, you wait, 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 wait. What were you laughing at? You know, it's really dumb. Tell me, tell me. One of the spirits has his balls on your head. What? You know that thing with friends when you go up behind somebody and you just plop your balls on their head? He's teabagging me? Kinda, sorta, yeah. Right now? Yeah. <laughs> right now he is. Yes, is... he is. But, um... Uh, want he still? Yes, but you want to know about your job? No, right? I want to deal with this now. Well, you can't even feel it. No, it's... I don't uh... care. Make him stop. Is he still? Yes, he is. But... Right now? Yes, but... Make him stop, please. Spirit, why are you doing this to this man? What? Uh, Did he stop? No. Uh, Now he's just pretending to all the other spirits that your head feels really good on his balls. Gross!
3: No! No! I don't like this! Make him stop! Make Make him quit! She was the only love!
6: Good evening, good evening. Just by a uh, quick show of hands, how many people were shot at on your way here? Anyone? No one? Well, this is Baltimore. We've had a lot going on these past few years. Protests, riots, crime, everything's been going on. I myself was a victim of violence here in Baltimore. Baltimore. Go figure, young black man growing up in Baltimore, 19 years old. What are the odds? (laughs) But what are the odds when the young man is an A student, honor roll, churchgoer, choir, orchestra, great friends? It's pretty scary. About 25 years ago, a buddy of mine, Joe, was at his house. And we decided after hanging out all day that we were going to go and go see our girlfriends. Pretty late, about 9, 10 o'clock at night, near Mondawmin Mall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> <laughs> I said I was an honor roll student, not the smartest guy in the world. <laughs> well, when we started leaving his house, his mom was like, hey, 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 guys, you, you, you know, Calvin, you, you, you can stay. You you don't have to leave. You can stay the night. For what? I'm invincible. No one's going to touch me. No one's going to do anything to me. Actually, what I was was sheltered. I hadn't seen violence. I hadn't been around violence. All my friends, everyone's great. Whereas we're walking towards Mondamin Mall to get public transportation, we see a car go in front of us, and they stop and they wave something out of the window. My buddy Joe says, hey, 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 Calvin, I I, I think that's a gun. In my mind, I'm like, well, I don't live around here. They don't need to shoot me. (laughs) (laughs) Joe? Oh, no, 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 no. They don't need to shoot me either. So we continue walking. And at that time, we're talking about bad boy and, you know, that was hit down there. And all of a sudden, I hear firecracker. And then I feel something hit my arm. So I turn around to see what's going on. And I hear the screech, but I don't see anything behind me. The screech was Joe running. (laughs) For my white brothers and sisters, when one of us runs, we all run. (laughs) So I start running, just heading towards Mondawmi Mall. So as I'm running, I feel my arm is a little wet. I'm wondering what's going on, but I'm still running, and as I look down, I see a hole in my jacket, and the only thing I'm thinking is, oh, shit, that was the most powerful water gun that I've ever seen in my life. This is when the super soakers was out. You remember those? I was like, fuck, I got to get me one of these shits. So as I'm running, I'm still running, and something's not right about this super soaker that hit me. Because my mom would never let me buy anything that's going to damage anyone or damage anyone's clothes. So I run down into the subway in Mon Mall. I pull up my sweatshirt sleeve and I see the bullet holes. The entry and the exit wound. And I see the blood. Immediately, I'm, oh my God, I've been shot! What, what am I, I going to do? And also, I'm thinking, I have so much more pussy to get, I cannot believe that I'm going to fucking die in the subway station with all this pussy out of here. What the fuck? (laughs) So I run over to the subway attendants, they're in the glass, and I'm banging on the window, I'm banging on the... I've been shot, I've been shot, I've been shot! Do you know these motherfuckers originated the mannequin challenge? They literally were like... So you motherfuckers aren't going to help me, I see. So now I got to head back out. I'm afraid that there's going to be like a death squad standing at the top of the subway station ready to just take me out. But I got to get out of there because I'm trapped. So I run up and I go out and I start running towards the first place I could think where there would be police officers. And that's North and Pennsylvania Avenue. And if you're familiar with it. We all know that there are no police on Northern Pennsylvania Avenue, but I was gonna run there anyway. So as I'm running, I hear Calvin, 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 mall security, mall security is here. Come, come on over, come on over. So Joe is there, so I'm running over to mall security, and I'm running up to mall security, and we're both like, hey, I've been shot, I've been shot. Joe's like, he's been shot, he's been shot. Mall security is like, hey, shut up, shut it up. What the fuck? Shut up. Stand against the wall. What, the, what happened? So I show him my arm. And he said, oh my God, you've been shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, what do you want me to do? Well, I didn't go to Flashlight University. Whatever the fuck <laughs> is in your manual, do that. I'm assuming it would be call 911. So he calls 911. 911. And in an instant, police are coming from everywhere. And then there's an ambulance coming to you. But police are coming from everywhere. Police are coming from everywhere. <laughs> so the first police officer comes up to me and says, hey, who shot you? I, I don't know. Why, why'd they shoot you? I, I don't know. So the next police officer comes up to me. Hey, who shot you? I don't know. Well, why'd they shoot you? I don't know. The third police officer comes up to me. You kind of get what he said. So I get into the ambulance. The paramedic says, hey, who shot you? (laughs) Buddy, I don't know. Why'd they shoot you, buddy? I don't know. There's a knock on the door. What opens the door is the most amazing policewoman that I had ever seen in my life. At this point, I knew I was going to survive and you know what she was about to be. So she says, hey, who shot you? I don't know, but you need to get him because I need some help so bad. I I reach out my arms and she closes the door and says he'll be okay. I guess that mission was not accomplished. They take me to the hospital. At the hospital, I have to call my mom because I need insurance. So I call my mom. I say, hey, mom, am I still on the health insurance? Her first question is, okay, so you're calling me about midnight. Why the fuck do you need to know, are you on the health insurance? Oh, I forgot to mention that I've been shot. What the fuck do you mean? Where are you? Where I knew that girl that you were with was not shit. I knew she was going to get you hurt. I knew it. Now... The nurse takes the phone, and as soon as she takes the phone, I hear, where is he? Where is he? Oh, my God, my boyfriend's been shot. Where is he? Where is she? Where is he? So she comes, and she sees me, and I smile at her, and I say, hey, I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. She was like, where were you? I I, I was out with a buddy. She said, I saw this female police officer, and she told me that you were doing fine. Is that all she told you? (laughs) Yeah, she said she wanted me to go see you. It seemed like you needed some love. <laughs> Fuck her. Anyway, later that night, I get into the house. My dad calls me and he says, son, I, I know you've been shot and, and I know you're okay. And you're always going to be okay because you're my son and I love you. And I said, hey, Dad, you know, it, it's no big deal. It's not a big deal. And He cuts me off. He said, it is a big deal, son. You could have died tonight. I could have lost you forever. And that would have killed me. Hey, Dad, but it's no big Son, it's a big deal. You need to take better precautions. You don't need to go out late at night. This is a dangerous city. We hang up the phone. I made the news, actually. It was on Channel 45, so I'm watching myself in the ambulance going like this. <laughs> After the the news went off, I actually cried, not because of the pain, but because someone had the audacity to attempt to take my life, someone who doesn't know that years later I would have great friends, amazing children, the most gorgeous fiance ever, that I would be up here speaking with you great people. But I want to thank that shooter. I want to thank him for reminding me how precious not just my life is, but everyone's life. I want to thank that shooter for forcing me to live every day of my life to the fullest. I also want to say, nigga, turn yourself in. You fucking shot me!
3: Me out again and hung me high to rust under the rain.
6: I am. Not
0: Is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Max Jury behind me now, and we just heard from Calco. Hey, thanks again to Sock Club for sponsoring today's episode. Sock Club provides a little gift with a big impact that's sure to make you look like an expert gift giver. Each package includes quality American-made socks, a customizable gift message, and a printable membership certificate. So all you last-minute shoppers are covered, too. Just for listeners of RISK, Sock Club is offering 15% off subscriptions. So go to sockclub.com and use the code RISK at the checkout. Give Sock Club this holiday season. And you're probably wondering where RISK is coming next. Well, on December 14th, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Hey, if you live in New York, come on out to our Bell House shows. Those are so wonderful. We've got so many great people who do the show. The Bell House is just a wonderful venue, and there's nothing like seeing Risk live. So December 14th, we are at the Bell House in Brooklyn. December 15th, we're in Detroit, Detroit, Michigan. Come on out, Detroit. You can find out all this information on our tour pages at risk tour. On December 16th, we're in Milwaukee, We'll be at Collectivo Coffee there in Milwaukee. Come on out, December 16th, folks in Milwaukee. On December 17th, we will be in Los Angeles again, there at the Bootleg Theater. That should be a great night. And January 25th, we're back at the Bell House again. January 27th, we are in San Francisco at the Swedish American Hall. That's going to be a big show. A lot of big names on our San Francisco show on January 27th. And on February 17th, we're back in Carborough, North Carolina. We're still taking pitches for that one. The theme that night is, what? And uh, you can pitch us at risk-show.com slash Submissions, And whenever you're wondering where we're coming next, go to risk-show.com tour. And if you don't already know, we teach storytelling too. Now, what is there to gain from storytelling training? Well, some people take storytelling workshops just to kind of look through their memories, you know, uh, like journaling, uh, kind of exploring what it is that they might want to share about other people want to get over shyness and learn how to communicate more compellingly. Business people take storytelling workshops in order to learn how to persuade and to speak in a more human and emotional way that holds people's attention and convinces people to come along on a certain mission at the storystudio.org. We teach video courses that you can take in your own time or one-on-one training over Skype, or our in-person workshops where you can try stories out with other people, or of course, our corporate workshops where we can come to your staff to work with you on stories that help to spread the word about what it is that you do. All of that can be found at thestorystudio.org. And there's plenty of other ways to get involved with risk itself, Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, at Risk Show. Comment on the show at iTunes or on the comments pages, the, the listen pages for each episode on our site. Pitch us your stories. We are always taking pitches, no matter where you are in the world, at risk submissions. And finally, spread the word. We have relied since 2009 on people spreading the word about how wonderful this show is nothing is more important to us than that that word of mouth share the show with your friends folks today's the day take a risk
5: Why, they wouldn't even look for me. No respect, no respect. I was an ugly kid. I never had fun. No respect, no respect. They took me to a dog show and I won. No respect, no respect. When I was born, I brought no joy. No respect, no respect. My old man said he wanted a boy. No respect, no respect. I was an ugly kid, always alone. No respect, no respect. Halloween, I had a trick or treat over the phone. No respect, no respect.